Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live here. Welcome, everybody, to Standing for Truth. My name is Donnie B, and I am your host for this next session in our 2022 Defending Genesis conference. I have Professor David McQueen and George Bond, my amazing flood researchers for the Standing for Truth team. This is day four, session eight. We have now uh, roughly 14 plus hours worth of conference content on all sorts of topic, uh, topics related to the creation versus evolution controversy. The topic for this session, session eight, is amazing evidence for the worldwide flood. Both George and David, of course, have done a ton of research on this topic, and I am uh, very much looking forward to this. Professor David McQueen, good to have you here, brother. I'm gonna hand it over to you. I'm loving the Batman there. So it's so good to be back with uh, George. Uh, I uh, always enjoy the first five minutes that we we can be lighthearted about uh, Batman and Robin and so forth. Uh, George, I I got these for you. Halloween's <laughs> coming up, and the animals in Australia may maybe they even dress up. I am not clear about that. I've, I've got I've got I've got some wisdom for you too, David. Did you know the early bird catches the worm? You're yeah, I've that. heard that. But did you know? But the second mouse gets the cheese. Ah, the second mouse. That's true. And here's my joke for you, my friend. I I've been a bit under the weather and just walking around the neighborhood and carrying my Batman head and uh, what I've discovered is uh, some people don't like me. George, I, I was walking down the road and I was hit by a uh, violin, a cello, and a bassoon. What am I to assume? Well, I think it was an orchestrated attack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sounds like well, it to me, Professor McQueen. So much, I appreciate uh, for that for that humor there. Uh, George and I have uh, spoken for the last two weeks about how we want to proceed. Uh, I am going to give a 20-minute uh, overview of what I consider the five best evidences for the worldwide flood. I'm going to limit myself to 20 minutes, turn it over to George for 20 minutes, and then Donnie, if you could uh, alert us when we get to the uh, <clears throat> the 40-minute uh, break, we want to take some Q&A 
before we go to the one hour break, I will ask you and George to cover for me then. In this bout of sickness I've had, my tastes have changed, George. I have switched from coffee to very strong black tea. So I'll get some of that with your permission when the time comes. Okay, George? No worries. Just keep keep in mind, too, that I have to head off. I've got a lunch appointment. So, um, okay, good. We're, we're going to try and cover all that uh, <clears throat> that information we've got in uh, that short time we've we've got. So, okay, good. Let's get cracking. George, it better, George, it better be pizza you're having for lunch. Oh, definitely. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. I had with a pineapple. Feeling, I had a feel, you're with the pizza pineapple. man. It, it's okay. I <laughs> Donnie, if you'll help me out and tell me when I have five minutes left of my, um, of my 20, uh, George and Donnie have encouraged me to move into the 21st century. So I actually want to share my screen for the first time. Let me see if I can follow the steps that I have been taught. I guess I asked Donnie, can I share my screen? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Professor McQueen. So if you remember um, at the bottom of the screen, you'll see all the options, mute, stop cam settings and share. So make sure to okay, I'll click uh, share here and then you'll First get a few other options. Yeah. yeah. And then just make sure to click the share screen option, share screen uh, option. And then it, it okay. should say, choose what to share. And you're going to want to share the entire screen and you're going to want to make sure to uh, click the box that's right okay. in the middle there. And then you'll okay, be able to good. click the share button. Okay, good. I'm uh, clicking the entire screen and I want to share. And what I do is now I bring up my PowerPoint, right? There it yes. is. Professor uh, McQueen, you are an expert already. Okay, no, I'm not, but I'll try this. Here's my PowerPoint presentation. And... Um, I guess I make it full screen just like I always do by pressing this. Yes. Maybe? Yep. Yep. Okay. And then I'll click through it. Um, here are the five evidences, best evidences, that a young earth worldwide flood is the correct model. And it certainly can be seen in the Grand Canyon. Uh Okay, now let me uh, go up here and uh, start my slideshow, which I guess I do that way. And I start it from the beginning. Now, am I moving into the 21st century here? Uh, I hope I am. <laughs> yes, um, you are. Yes, you are. And so now my screen is going blank um, because it's sharing my screen. It looks like it's just loading. Oh, it's loading it up. Okay. Yeah, I can see uh, the uh, old old computer here. So I'll go through the five things and I'll show you the five things. Um, five best arguments are these. Persistent um, strata, such as what we see in the Grand Canyon here. If, whoops, press the wrong button apparently. Um, the, um, I don't know what I did wrong. Strange. Um, no worries, Professor McQueen. You're still shared. 
So if you just okay, go back good. to your PowerPoint. Okay, um, let me go back to my PowerPoint, which should be. Uh, unless you um, accidentally exited out of it, I'm not too sure. I must you, have. The, yeah, uh, you may. Listen, I uh, will continue to play with this. I'm going to stop sharing and do it the old-fashioned way here. Um, so here are the points, the five proofs for the true geology of the worldwide flood. The first one is the persistent strata that we see at the Grand Canyon. As we've uh, commented, George and I, over the last year, if you look at the uh, lowermost strata in the Grand Canyon called the Salk Sequence, illustrated by this um, blue Play-Doh here, it turns out that you can find that salt sequence all over America. The Tapit Sandstone equivalent in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, it's called the Rome Formation. And it's got a little bit of a look of this red that you see here. I'm going to tell you how that red will trick you in a minute. And so the first point is, how can you explain in an evolutionary geology point of view, how you can get persistent uh, uh, rocks all over the, uh, the continent. The second point is the dominance of marine fossils. Donnie, if you and George visit me in the years to come, we'll rendezvous in uh, Cincinnati, go see Ken Ham's uh, Ark and the uh, rest of the museum and so forth. And if we go there, we'll be able to find fossil bearing rocks. Now it turns out uh, a US dollar bill is six inches to give you a sense of the scale here. You can find, uh, this is a uh, Ordovician or salt sequence uh, uh, stromatolite there. An example of marine fossils. Well, the marine fossils that are found all over the earth uh, are a group of clams and snails and brachiopods. If we go to Cincinnati and we go near the Ohio River, George, we'll be able to see brachiopods there. Clams and snails we all should be familiar with from taking our families to the beach. A clam is a plesiopod. A snail is a gastropod. The rocks that are at the uh, Cincinnati area are so famous, they're given their own series. They're called the Cincinnatian series, and they're found worldwide. Since the worldwide flood is true, we would expect that marine creatures would be buried in the rock record before uh, mammals, dinosaurs, and man. And so this is consistent with our flood model. The third argument that I would give to our uh, audience tonight is chalk, uh, White Cliffs of Dover. I think we've all seen images of the White Cliffs of Dover as the years have gone on. And that same white chalk that consists of microfossils, is found in Texas. It's called the Austin Chalk. The White Cliffs of Dover 
I must admit, Grandfather McQueen and my own dad might not appreciate this, but the Queen died today. Traditionally, you're supposed to say, the Queen is dead, long live the King. Tremendous respect for her, for her World War II service. So the White Cliffs of Dover, when you go across into Europe proper, you find it. And as we've talked about Derek Auger in the past, he found it on the north shore, uh, on the north coast, rather, of Turkey. So these are uh, microfossils, and it shows that we have worldwide rock types, perfectly consistent with the uh, worldwide flood. Now, if you imagine this rock here to be a map instead of a rock, let's travel to the Bahamas. If we go to the Bahamas, go to the Andros Island there in, in the Bahamas, you and George and I, Donnie, can walk out on micrite mud. Now, why would a carbonate like that be such an important argument tonight? In previous videos, George and I have pointed out that limestone is simply not a problem. It's not a problem to have a group of chemicals. For example, here is an antacid tablet that is calcium carbonate, you'll see there. You mix that with water at a certain pH, temperature, partial pressure of oxygen, partial pressure of uh, or a certain amount of CO2, and you can directly precipitate from the ocean of Noah's day limestones. And so the arguments that many have given, George and I, in the last year, oh, McQueen, oh, George, you can't uh, get limestones. It has to be a long time. That's simply not true. My final argument, and I'll use my, uh, I keep my markers in a can of primordial, primordial soup. Donnie, you don't think that something may begin to evolve and crawl out of my pr primordial soup, do you? <laughs> There's always a chance. There's always in the a mind chance. Of the well, it's an empty can. If you wait long food. enough, you it will. Oh, that's right. Time is our big answer, isn't it? Yep. So imagine that we put this can down in the ground in the western United States. So you walk up upon it. Let me get it turned right. And you look down at the famous Bingham Copper Mine. This open pit mine in the western United States consists of copper, lead, zinc, gold, silver, it was, it's an amazing uh, mine. Now, I saw it when it was active back in the 60s and the 70s. Sadly now, through some governmental mis mismanagement, sadly, it has filled in with water and has actually become a, an enormous uh, toxic waste issue. But let's go back to the days when it was just a hole in the ground. All of you that are watching this that might be uh, in the Green Party or concerned about the environment and 
the pollution of metals that come out of mines and so forth. Let me suggest to you that if you go to an open pit mine to protest, be sure that you ride a horse. Because if you take a Mercedes Benz or you take a Chevy to this um, open pit mine, you're being a hypocrite because you could not have all that without uh, the metal, couldn't have a car, couldn't have a plane to get there. So as you go worldwide, I want to assure you that whether you're in Australia or Africa, these five points provide a valuable argument. How close am I to my mark, uh, Donnie? Good question. You are at eight minutes, uh, Professor McQueen. Eight minutes. Okay. Well, then I've got uh, a few more minutes to talk about. Um, the argument that George and I have made over the last year is that when you look at the stratigraphic record, the fossils that are in it appear abruptly and fully formed. And so if you go to a place like the Grand Canyon and look, look for a trilobite, and you'll notice I've poked a hole in my Play-Doh here. I think you can see it there. Let's imagine that to be a fossil. That fossil would not just lie about for um, uh, 10,000 years before it got covered by another rock unit and fossilized. No, not at all. The clams and the snails that we talked about earlier, if you've been to a beach and actually seen the seashells there, you never find, never, on a modern beach, you find the shells popped open. Why? Because the biological part that holds a clam shell together rots very quickly and then the shell pops open. Only if you see catastrophic burial do you find, um, only if you find catastrophic burial do you find whole clams and whole uh, uh, brachiopods and other bivalves uh, in that environment. And so when we look at these five points, I'll go on over them one more time. The persistence of strata, like at the Grand Canyon, the Tapetes, the Coconino can find up, be found all over North America. How does the evolutionary community explain that marine fossils dominate in essentially Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, even? You pick up some fish fossils there. But let's stick to the Cambrian Ordovician, the salt sequence. How come they dominate there? I would argue because they were first captured by the worldwide flood. The chalk deposits in England, Austin, Texas, the North Shore of Turkey, these kind of chalk deposits are not a problem for young earth creationists, but rather they're a, a problem for the evolutionary community because how come we should have worldwide rock types that are easily identifiable as we travel the globe? 
when we go to a place like the Bahamas, we can see a modern laboratory illustrating the rapid formation from seawater of carbonates. And then finally, um, when we go to look to explain ore deposits, we see an evidence of God's grace. The large copper deposits in the upper peninsula of Michigan that I've spoken about in the past, let's return there. The descendants of Shemham and Japheth as they moved around um, the earth, um, migrated, they came across the Canadian Rockies, and they, they ended up in what we would call the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And as they were walking around, uh, one of the teenagers ran ahead, fell down, and cut his knee on a copper deposit sticking up out of the ground. And so it was by God's grace that the Native Americans um, found these copper deposits. Then when the Cornish miners came over to America and were in Michigan, they began working mines on the old uh, Native American area and discovered the copper that became the standard for the American copper industry and also worldwide. I think George could look up in his old electrical engineering books the resistivity of, uh, of copper, and he'd probably find a column there uh, for native copper. Any questions from uh, Donnie or George? Uh, I'm ready to turn it over to him now. Very good, Professor McQueen. Great timing. Fantastic uh, lines of evidence presented. I do appreciate that. Uh, we got 50 people in the chat enjoying this so far. I do want to remind anybody who's just joining us. This is uh, session eight, day four of our 2022 Defending Genesis Conference. The topic of this specific session is amazing evidence for the worldwide flood. Please tag me with your questions. I do have some already, but I'll save that for the uh, audience question and answer portion, uh, Professor McQueen. And George, with your permission, I'm going to have him drop my video and go get some hot tea. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good job, David and George. Yeah, no problem. Award-winning co-host, you. Um, I'm going to share my screen, Donnie, because I've got a lot to, to show, but I don't I know, know whether you. we'll go through it all in, uh, in the time that we've got. <clears throat> George, I want to point out, uh, with how much research you've done and the evidence that you're about to provide, we are definitely going to be getting some what? Pizza. No, no, no. Have a look at the camera. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm into my oh, uh, oh, oh, yeah. evolution tears. Yeah, evolutionist yeah, yeah. tears. Okay. Yeah. Nice, fresh cup of evolutionist <laughs> tears. So here we go, George. You are shared. You're good to go, brother. And don't oh. make them uniformitarians cry too much. Okay. So uh, I'd like to start off by saying, may the spirit of God open your eyes to the light, your ears to the truth and your heart to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we're going to go through today, there's a lot. I mean, I've heard evolutionists, they say categorically, right? They say 
there is no evidence for a worldwide flood. I don't know whether they're blind or stupid or whatever, but you only have to go outside to have a look. Um, there's a thing called sedimentary layers, but let's let's go through anyway. Uh, in Genesis 7.1, you know, and the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Now, at Standing for Truth, we're here, and our main, and our main mission statement is <clears throat> defend, defending the truth of biblical creation. And biblical creation is in Genesis, right? I always say, if you can't, if you can't support the foundation, then there's no point. <clears throat> That's why I laugh at these uh, um, theistic evolutionists who, who uh, question Genesis. They try and insert all sorts of ideas about gaps, etc., to fit in with uh, millions and billions of years that uh, scientists have uh, determined. But I'm currently uh, reading this book called um, Design Dissected by, um, uh, well, it's, it's not by Alistair Noble, but this is a forward that uh, Dr. Alistair Noble has written. It says, uh, I'm not going to read all of it, but blindly defending the consensus is not how science and medicine advance, but rather by the hard-worn, hard-won acceptance of radical ideas which were originally dismissed with derision. Breakthroughs came from brave individuals who were willing to challenge the consensus with indisputable evidence for their case. Um, I, I always say that um, it'll be the secular scientists that will prove Genesis, and and they're doing it slowly, but we have to be patient. Okay, one one example is I kept hearing that uh, limestone, um, and Professor McQueen touched on it a little bit, can't flocculate in. Um, high-velocity, turbulent uh, situations, e.g. a noble flood. Well, um, there was a recent paper that was written by a secular geologist that dismissed that and say it can't flocculate during um, uh, um, fast-running water and turbulent waters. So all of a sudden, they have to change their thinking. Okay, so... This is what we normally say, the origin of nonsense. And it is, it's, a, it's nonsense. And I always like to say, don't be deceived. Evolution is a lie. I have pens with that particular inscription on them, which I give away. Uh, oh, well, you heard that, that uh, bit of a joke. Uh, the early bird catch the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Okay, look, so, so here's some proofs. Uh, Going back to languages, I'll touch on languages a bit later on, but you'll see there, this is Chinese, um, uh, uh, what do they call them, writing. So you can see there, Trinity plus person equals morally upright plus tree plus fuel <coughs> equals Shang Di. Now, Shang Di, if you don't know, is also written simply as emperor or is the Chinese term for supreme deity in the highest or highest deity, uh, e.g., a.k.a. God. There's another one. <clears throat> Woman plus trees equals desire or covert. How, how do these people get all these that, that are so closely uh, linked to what the Bible's saying? There's hands plus tree equals mulberry tree plus mouths equals to die, perish. 
Uh, I think we can all make the tie there, can't we? All right, person, or in other words, Adam plus serpent equals moon. Chinese must have got that from somewhere. Person plus trees equal thorns. Another uh, analogy to the Bible. Noble man plus disobedient re equals rejoice. Kneeling man take hold of. There's so much of the Bible in the Chinese inscriptions. It's it's unbelievable. Serpent plus trees equals negative. No, not. So we know that part of it as well. Now let's get into uh, the actual uh, flood itself. Uh, we hear we hear that it, from many people that it was just a series of local floods. Well, here's a summary in a in a graph form of the events in the Bible. Okay, you'll see. Now, what what local flood has ever produced forty days and nights of continuous downpour? I'd like to know. And covers all the distant mountains, and caused river rising water waters for one hundred and fifty days. There it is. There in that particular one, flooding for three hundred and fourteen days. So there it is. There before the waters started to recede. And left the land unsafe and unstable for 57 days. That's from the time the waters start begin to, to drain to the, the actual ground beginning to, to become dry and um, uh, they're able to leave the ark. Now, the geological evidence, as we said, there's, there's an ascending phase. That is the first 150 days. Uh, we have the rapid formation of layers as, as shown by the fact that the things are fossilised before they could decompose or get scavenged. If ever seen fossil roadkill, for example. Now, sedimentary layers, I think Dr. Uh, Professor McQueen touched, up, touched on this. Um, you, you'll see that um, uh, we find rock layers uh, worldwide uh, and and they've done chemical analysis of these rock layers uh, to um, to determine that they are the same. They are the same rocks. Uh, for example, um, they can be traced all the way across continents, even between continents. Uh, I think uh, Professor McQueen touched up on uh, the limestone, but here's a particular <clears throat> a museum here, um, which shows the Cretaceous layer going across from Libya, North uh, Africa, to Israel. Uh, these are mega sequences. There's also the Salk um, sandstone, uh, again, uh, going from, from one continent to another. Uh, you've got the same thing, the geological column here, the Grand Canyon and the Chippewa Falls in Wisconsin. Um, here, here's some... Um, Sonar studies. This was um, something that uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Steve Austin had uh, undertaken at the Spirit Lakes. You can see there that um, those polystrate trees quite clearly at the base of the lake. And that there they are sinking to the bottom in that vertical position. Uh, you, you can do this test yourself, actually. You can get some matches, put them in a container, or a beaker of water and let them sit there and, you, and you'll see that after a while, uh, some of them, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them will uh, begin to sink to the bottom in that vertical uh, position. Um, now, um, th this is one of the things I, I, I like about um, when um, 
I mean, I've I've read a lot of rescue devices for the polystrate trees, but um, I spoke to John Mackay uh, a couple of times on this, and he and because he he's considered an expert in coal, okay, and he's he's told me that uh, they have found. Uh, well, let's go through the secular explanation first. They believe that polystrate, sorry, they believe that coal formed in swampy lands over millions of years, you know, forests grow, they fall over, new, a new forest grows, it falls over, et cetera, et cetera. But what, what he says, we, we have found a species of tree in a vertical position that doesn't grow in swamps. So th their, their, whole, um, uh, their whole assumptions about this, it can be, can be shot down just by one example. And that, particular species that that particular polystrate tree that doesn't grow in swamps is one of those pieces of ed evidences that you can shoot down the um the the, the polystrate uh, rescue devices also also there was there was i, was, I spoke to ian juby and uh, he's done a lot of work at the um Joggin site in canada uh they found reeds reeds not trees but reeds in a polystrate in a vertical position in the upside down position okay so th their rescue devices just don't work i think that that's it's a grasping of straws to to uh save to save their deep time um scenarios so uh we we, we can go like like i've said here it says hardly oops oops sorry I'm too I'm too quick with this um, this mouse. Uh, I gotta I gotta stop. Uh, um, just bear with me, sorry. Uh, yeah, we, we can see we can see from um, lit, literal photographs that have exposed. Um, the the uh, cross sections of these uh, geological uh, hills and layers that uh, there's hardly any time between the layers as shown by the flat gaps uh, ephemeral markings and the polystrate fossils as we just mentioned and here's a, a classic example you look at those thin layers I think jo John Mackay and Joseph Hubbard showed similar examples yesterday where th they actually cut through a creek bed and showed those those particular fine layers of uh, material. Now, according to secular geology, th that that occurred over millions, probably hundreds of thousands to millions of years. I mean, come on, guys, where, where, where's the erosion marks between those? And we'll show you later that uh, some of the other evidences that it just it, it just can't be explained by uh, deep time. Okay, um, I'm a firm believer, as John is, uh, that rock layers grow sideways because I've I've seen them uh, form. I've seen them in in um, university flumes. I've seen them form in flumes that that John and and Joseph Hubbard have have done in um, in their Jurassic Arc um, in Queensland, and you can all all see the uh, the videos of this uh, as well. So. Just don't take my word for it. I mean, if, if you if you don't believe your own eyes, then um, I'm sorry, no, I, I can't help you. But uh, I, I think John John is correct that uh, we need to pay him um, some some copyright money for using the geological column uh, term. 
I think it's really good. And and of course, you go to you go to other bits of information where um, you, you've got things like a hun- hundreds of millions of years of missing um, sediments. Okay, and even in uh, in the Grand Canyon, you can see there. Uh, so so many missing years of uh, sediment, um, and you have to ask why. Uh, why? There's another example of those thin layers. Here, here, here's something. Could there ever uh, be only one type of material available for deposition in any environment for tens of millions of years? How could that be possible? Look at that, right? Uh, why isn't it contaminated with other material? I mean, we, we spoke about the limestone, and limestone... Um, uh, is deposited very slowly according to the secular geology explanation. If it took so many millions of years to deposit the limestone, why don't you find contamination or, or gradation of other materials in with the limestone? Uh, more evidence. Uh, I can keep going. Um, impact craters. Uh, this is fantastic. Uh, uh, there are 110 impact craters in the fossil record, and you can see there where they're found. Um, and but the, the 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 problem is if if you look at uh, preceding layers below the surface, you don't find many. I don't think you find any actually. So that's another piece of evidence. And it goes goes back to my favourite uh, subject of fossilised uh, lightning, that uh, e.g. the fulgurites. If if um, the the Earth is four point five billion years, and there and there's been rain and lightning storms. For most part of that, each layer should show some uh, evidence of uh, these fulgurites. Uh, that that and there's quite quite a, a substantial number of lightning strikes on the surface, by the way. But we don't find that uh, when you look when you look at the maths, it makes more sense that uh, the Earth is young rather than billions of years old. Okay, so. These are fantastic examples, you know, like the um, bends in the in the rocks. Um, John Mackay has demonstrated this in his flume experiments, where uh, he can actually create a lot of these geological um, uh, features that you see in textbooks in just twenty minutes in the uh, fossil re- in the um, flume experiments. And um, I'll show you a short video which he actually um, showed yesterday which demonstrates that. Uh, look, look at these layers here. That's amazing. There's no way that could happen in a deep time scenario without, without substantial cracking through, through those layers. Their explanation is the only way that can occur is if it's deep underground under pressure and, and great amounts of, of heat with lateral pressures, which would uh, bend those ductile materials without fracture. <clears throat> well, there is no fracture. And if you look, if you look at um, uh, if you look at the the depths that, that this would have to occur, you'd have to ask why um, is the erosion so immense? Um, and it doesn't fit their own erosion rates, by the way, because <clears throat> under their own erosion rates of uh, six centimeters per thousand years, the entire Earth's uh, dry landscape would erode down to sea level in just uh, ten to twelve million years. <clears throat> okay, here's here's some more examples. Uh, try, try and explain that one to um, to a young Earth creationist that that was formed um, because of ducti- ductile and uh, ductility um, 
uh, and uh, lateral forces deep underground. That's ridiculous. You look, look at that formation there, followed by the the, the laminar um, of, uh, layers above it. Uh, I think you, you guys, if you if you saw yesterday's presentation by John McKay, uh, McKay, he he actually showed this rotary flume where uh, he actually created um, some of the landscapes that we're all that we're all familiar with uh, at the Grand Canyon. Uh, with with the layering, by the way, and the layering and the landscape. <clears throat> Here's some of those examples that I mentioned. <clears throat> these are these are flume experiments. Okay, these are real real life experiments that you, you can watch form yourself. Here they are again. Okay, it doesn't take millions and billions of years for those layers to form. <clears throat> Look at that and that. That's this. This is this is a part where um, he uh, John simulated the um, the Bible's um, um, claim that the um, uh, depths, the waters of the deep, broke open, and he actually had water coming through through that particular point that created that that specific feature. There you go. Yes, that fracture straight line was caused by water, not by earth cracking. <clears throat> And um, here's some more examples of some of those flume experiments where you can see um, anticlines and synclines forming within 20 minutes, and they're only they're formed parallel to the current, by the way. So <clears throat> no, it doesn't take millions of years uh, with lateral pressures, etc. And there's a classic uh, comparison of uh, what uh, John had done and what the textbooks actually illustrate. Uh, again, the same thing in anticlines and synclines, uh, not due to uh, subsidence or uplift, but uh, just the fact that the water flows in various um, situations like that. There are very there are lots of variables, by the way, in water. There's quantity, there's velocity, um, uh, ch changes changes in velocity, um, as etc. So a, a lot can happen with those parameters changing. Uh, that the Pete Sandstone, I think I've mentioned this before, uh, where we see these 90 degree bends, the um, secular explanation is that, uh, and, and of course the recumbent folds in the coconut and sandstone, which they, um, the secular uh, geologists claim that these occur in a Aeolian um, uh, situation, that is wind dep deposition. That, sorry, that can't happen in wind deposition. That can only happen in water. As you, as you saw previously in those flume experiments, that is, that is a water deposition. But going back to this uh, sandstone, um, we, we have now uh, re rebuked or um, rebutted the uh, secular explanation that this occurred, um, you know, deep in the earth. Uh, we're under heat and pressure with lateral compression causing those, those bends because we've done tests on the um, the particles themselves, and there's no crystallization, there's no metamorphosis, uh, metamorphic uh, process you'd expect in in heat type situations, and there is none. So that can that, that can now only happen by one process, and that is a a water deposition uh, with those layers being bent while I was still moist. Okay, the other one. This is the Grand uh, Teton National Park. Um, also, uh, you'll see it at the Himalayas as well. Uh, the thing I'd like you to notice here is the sharp edges along these ridges. Uh, 
if the if the earth is billions of years you'd ex and the amount of erosion that it's that has occurred during that period you'd expect these sharp edges to have rounded and probably even disappeared to be honest but that's another piece of evidence and uh, I, this is my prediction uh, just like junk dna the evolutionists will the geologists will end up with egg on their face when um, some of these evidences uh, are actually shown. I don't know whether they'll show them because it's too embarrassing for them. Uh, I'm not sure if the, the, the schools um, will actually um, provide these answers to, to the students, but we need, we need to spread this information out there so they're aware of them. Okay, this is a Texas shooter fallacy. This is, I, I always equate this to, um, to the evolutionists, okay? They all they they always come back and say things like I oh, it's it was expected right if you know anything about the Texas shooter fallacy is you shoot all these bullets and they're all over the place and you come along and you draw the the target afterwards and you say you see I was right so there you go okay fulgurites fossilized lightning I think I've said quite a bit about uh, um, the fulgurites uh, they, these uh, these uh, these form during uh, lightning storms and if you uh, check um, our previous streams on fulgurites you'll see why uh, it's almost impossible to to um, get a deep time scenario with these uh, formations they they the, we don't find any in the preceding layers at all um, yeah so that's, a, that's all I wanted to say there and and, and by the way these lightning strikes, travel deep into the ground even through lock, rock layers uh there, there's a series of them along the coast um obviously that's had a battering of uh lightning storms that have hit that coast um okay the recessive phase from how am i going donny am i going too fast or am i at the 20 minute mark you're doing great brother loving the slides loving the evidence okay um I, I I don't want it to be overly strict for you. So whenever you feel you want to take a few oh, audience no, questions, I, I, you just let me oh, know. I've got lots of lots to present, so I'll keep going until you stop me. Okay. Now now um, th this is this is something that uh, is um, what you can see here. The pro professor Patrick Nunn of the University of the Sunshine Coast has uh, drawn a uh, this illustration of um, the extent of the uh, Australian continent. Uh, 120 with uh, the ocean waters be, uh, at 120 meters below. Now um, I'm going to show you another one here, and this is from NASA. Okay, and you can clearly see the connection between the continents. All right, you can see uh, France and England uh, connected. You can see Australia is connected to uh, Indonesia and Vietnam. Uh, you can see uh, Alaska is connected to to um, to the Siberian uh, Peninsula, and he, here's a uh, this is secular information. Those those of you that are, um, follow the the subject of climate change, you'll see you'll see this um, particular graph which shows the change in sea level um, post glacial, right? So you can see that. Uh, the water levels were over 120 meters below the current levels, and that's what these diagrams actually show: 120 meters. 
So when, when people tell you that how, how did the kangaroos get to Australia, well, they walked there, or, they, or in the case of the kangaroo, they skipped there. Okay, they, these uh, plateaus, right, they, they, these are hard for uh, evolutionists to explain. The plateaus can only occur through uh, erosion. And um, Donnie will remember we, we had uh, um, um, Mike Ord uh, about a month ago, I believe, where he actually presented some uh, further information on, on ocean sediments. And um, they've done some studies now. We're calculating the volume of um, the sediments in the oceans. And they have determined that there would have been at least 1,900 metres, that's 1.9 kilometres, of material washed off the surface. There's your evidence. Okay, those plateaus. Okay, so th this is Grand Canyon again. Uh, classic example, I think Grand Canyon is a great example to show some of the erroneous asso assumptions of uh, some of these secular geologists. They want you to believe, right, that the Grand Canyon rock uh, took five to six million years of thousands. And by the way, in some cases, they, they, they uh, estimate it's between five to 70 million years. So I've taken the, the smaller figure there. Thousands of feet of erosion to form the canyon. However, you, you have 10 and 20 million years of missing layers. A bit hard to swallow that story, don't you think, when they say it took um, the Grand Canyon five to six million years to form, and yet uh, um, on the same breath they say that there are 10, 10 and 20 million years of missing layers. That's just, um, sorry, doesn't work. And, uh, of course, we mentioned this uh, again um, yesterday uh, on yesterday's stream about the Grand Canyons, um, the, the ignorance of, um, of Bill Nye and many other evolutionists uh, that I've uh, had conversations with on uh, the comments sections about why don't we find any uh, canyons in other parts of the world? Well, you do. You just have to bloody, um, uh, pardon the language, just, just Google even the ever reliable wikipedia will will tell you that uh that was sarcasm by the way it will tell you that there are numerous canyons all over the world as you can see there okay so i, I don't know what they're talking about because uh actually the, the largest one is the yalung zangabao grand canyon in tibet okay it's uh it's 500 kilometers long which is um Bigger than uh, the Grand Canyon at 447. So uh, now, now look, look at this. It's, it says um, geologists debate the age of the Grand Canyon itself. Uh, this, 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 these are not my words. It may be between 5 million to 70 million years old. Now, you'd think with all the dating methods that they themselves say corroborate themselves. They could agree on an age that has a fourteen hundred percent variance. That's huge. Where, where's the corroborance of the dating methods to show the age of the Grand Canyon? Why do you have five million to seventy million years when you argue that all your dating methods corroborate each other? Nonsense. Okay, uh, Psalms. Um, it says the mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. Here's an entire continent, the uh, continent of Zealandia. 
Uh, I brought this up yesterday at um, the presentation with John. <clears throat> you have a look at this. This this Zealandia continent is bigger than Australia, yet it's sunk. Why is it sunk deep under the uh, ocean? Well, the Bible talks about the the um, waters of the deep coming to the surface. Well, imagine if if the waters of the deep were contained below the um, ocean ocean uh, crust, then obviously if if the water has come up, there's a void there, and that and when once the void once there's a void, there's nothing holding it up. It's the everything above it will then sink. Hence, this particular um, continent of Zealandia, you can see there, has sunken down where ninety four percent of it is is actually underwater, and you can only see there uh, the remnants of New Caledonia and the and the islands of uh, of New Zealand in the south. Okay, that's another piece of evidence. Here's another one. Now, John in the um, in the uh, flume experiments has demonstrated this: the anticlines and synclines. In this particular case, entire mountains of anticline and synclines. Come on, guys! Please open your eyes. That's what I said about. You just have to open your eyes and see how could these features occur in a deep time scenario. Look at the layering. Look at the smooth layering. That can only happen through a moist situation where lateral compression has forced these mountains and folded them in the manner that there are, that, they, that you find them, with receding waters then carving out these, these um, valleys and hence you get those, those uh, rivers forming, rivers and creeks. Uh, we, we see it at um, Mount St. Helens. Uh, the Grand Canyon is another example. The river didn't carve that canyon. There's no way that that river could have carved the canyon. I mean, you've all heard the arguments about the the levels of um, the, the canyon, so I'm not going to go through all that. Uh, I, th I think it's pretty evident. Uh, another piece of evidence, the flood trend tra traditions. Heaps, hundreds, I think there's 270 or 300 uh, flood traditions that have been identified, and um, you, you can see some of this criteria that uh, we've gone through and we've tabled it, and um, look at some of the similarities. The 95% of it, uh, those those uh, flood traditions talk, talk about uh, a, glo a global flood. 70% uh, say the survival was due to a boat. 66% uh, was due to wickedness of man. Um, was there a favoured family? 88%. 66% um, was the remnant forewarned. Yes. Uh, Bible talks about all these things. Did animals play any part? 71%. Did the survivors end up on the mountain? 57%. Were birds sent out? 35%. So there's a lot lot of information that you can find, and, and you can do your own research on this. And if you like, um, there's some, some of the um, – the the references uh, that you, you you can you can check yourself, uh, but I find I find um, some of, some of the uh, explanations of um, the uh, secular people, or the evolutionists that come up with uh, you know the uh, the Genesis flood story was a plagiarization of the um, Gil Gilgamesh epic. Well. Um, George? Secular, sci secular scientists, just let me finish this point and I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, stop no there. Problem. 
Uh, secular, secular scientists also say that the Aboriginals are the oldest culture on Earth at forty to 60,000 years. They have flood stories. So if, that's, if, that, if that explanation is, is valid for them to use, then can you then can you make the uh, connection that the Gilgamesh story was actually a plagiarization of the Aboriginal flood story, because theirs is a lot earlier than um, than than theirs. So that I'll, I'll finish there, Donnie, and I'll go into the next one in the next section. Okay. All, All right. right. Great. Yeah. Yeah. George. Great stuff. Um, one comment perfectly sums that up. There we go. Anton says, this is mind blowing me right now. So, you know, it's uh, precisely why I say it's 2022 and it is a great time to be a young earth creationist. So great job so far, George and Professor McQueen. Uh, go ahead. Donnie before, Donnie, before we go to the first question, let me help George with his American pronunciation of the French. Uh, the, the Grand Teton, uh, National Park, those mountains you showed, mm -hmm. your point's very well taken that they should have been eroded in the past. But when the pioneers got there, having been away from their wives for so long, I wonder why they called it in French, Le Grand Teton. It turns out, I think Teton means breast in French. Uh, <laughs> how is your French? Okay, Donnie, let's go with the first question. And, and, stuff, and those, those mountains too, um, uh, I think it, the, the, their own secular secular geology um, papers even state this. Even the, the hardest rock mountains would erode down to nothing in 42 million years. So uh, it, it's just uh, one, one thing I'd like to say is, uh, look, I, I come from, a, I guess, a fairly well-educated position I never heard any of these arguments while I went through uh, high school and even university. It really took me, um, the, you know, the, the interest for me to, to actually research some of this stuff and find out that why, are, why aren't we being told about all this information, all this evidence that exists out right. there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that's, good a good, that's a good point. Um, okay, so first question that comes in, and George, to what you just said, that's why we find uh, hosting these types of comprehensive uh, conferences so important, especially for people who haven't heard these lines of evidence uh, before, because it's a great way to uh, convert, you know, bring people to Christ. So here we go. Question from Alan. Alan, $10 Super Chat. I do appreciate the support for this conference and, and for this ministry. So God bless. Question is, during the flood, how much distance do you think the ark traveled? My thinking is because the ark's dimensions were meant to float, ark wouldn't go far from the starting point. Go ahead, gentlemen. Let me right. let George, let me let George rest his voice for okay. Thank you. 60 seconds and uh, I'll, I'll respond to that. Um, remember that the thing that Alan points out here is absolutely true in the sense that if you look at Genesis 6, 7, and 8, the ark is essentially a Mississippi River barge. It's intended to uh, be very stable. Now, how much distance could it have gone? 
the biblical ark, the uh, way that it's described in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, Adam and his sons and their wives, the eight people on board the ark had uh, no rudder. They had no ability to change the angle of the ark. And so the, the ark truly does become an example of God's grace in the sense that God himself ordained where it went. Now, keep in mind that the fountains of the great deep are erupting uh, during this time. And so God, through the Holy Spirit, I'm sure moved the ark uh, all over its point. Uh, I'm, excuse, I'm not speaking clearly. I don't think the ark remained above where it started. In other words, it's not as if it floated up and stayed there for the uh, waters uh, rising and then receding. But rather, I think that the ark was moved by the Holy Spirit into positions of safety. Now, theologically, this exactly fits in to the idea that the ark is uh, symbolic of the Lord Jesus. Um, the ark moved to keep it out of danger with the hand of the Holy Spirit. What do you think, George? Well, we've, we've also found evidence of large ballast stones uh, that could have been hung on the sides of the ark to stabilize it. But uh, he, he, the point that, uh, yes, the ark was actually made to float, not to sail through the water. And um, there would have been some movement. Uh, I don't think anyone can really say categorically how far the ark may have traveled. It may have traveled and, and maybe with the um, motions of the waters, it may have traveled back. So it could have gone forward and back. Uh, we don't know. But, um, yeah, there's evidence there that it, that, that it was stable. Even even um, university students in, um, uh, what is it, Korea, I think South Korea, have done the um, uh, testing on, on the dimensions of the ark and found it to be the, the best proportioned shape for... Right. Or for floating. Yeah. Okay, Donnie, give us our next question there. We'll tackle it. All right. Great responses, gentlemen. Uh, this isn't a question, but Pure OC Gold is showing some love, showing some support for the conference. We do appreciate it. Lots of work, you know, gets put into these. So God bless. And $20 Super Chat. He says, it's a beautiful spring day. Coffee's all around. Glory to God. Black tea for uh, Professor McQueen. Yes, black tea. Okay. Yeah. Yep, we've got blue skies and sunny day out here. Pure Aussie gold knows um, where I am. Beautiful. Can't go wrong with that. So next question comes in from Praise I Am. Good question. Appreciate it. He asks, what does David say about cataclysmic occurrences that supposedly happened billions of years ago that account for oceanic fossils on mountain summits? This is a question that I get at least once a month. And sadly, it goes back to some bad Bible teaching. I would guess uh, from 1930 all the way up through uh, when Dr. Morris became uh, 
very active in the 1970s. And the idea is this. Uh, if this is Mount Everest here, and I'm going to draw a cross-section, if that's Mount Everest there, many Bible teachers had the idea, okay, the floodwaters rose, and as they rose, dead um, snails and clams were stuck on the outside of Mount Everest, so when the floodwaters went down, and then in our uh, last couple of centuries, when people climbed Mount Everest, they found these fossils sticking like this as an evidence of the Great Flood. Well, see, that's not the correct geologic way in flood geology to think about Mount Everest. This is the correct way. Mount Everest, at the end of the Great Flood and in the years after that, using the um, things that George has taught us tonight about soft sediment deformation, um, Mount Everest uh, layers were once horizontal. And as the uh, Indian subcontinent went up against the, um, and once again, let me be sure to put a tree here so that you know that this is a cross section. As Mount Everest was uh, built as a mountain after the flood, the fossil bearing rock layers uh, were uh, deformed along with the deformation of the mountain. And so when people have climbed Everest, they have found fossils in the area that I'll uh, circle with this red marker here. And that's why they find fossils from the Great Flood on Mount Everest. This is a very common misunderstanding. Back to you, Donnie. Very yeah. good. Thank you, Professor McQueen. Go ahead, George. Yeah, the other, the other point is um, uh, I think we've mentioned this many times. Uh, Dr. Baumgartner, if, if there are any other engineers in the chat, they'll, re they'll know about what a finite, finite element analysis is. But Dr. Baumgartner began with the Pangaea continent and uh, literally drew a finite element analysis actually looking at specifics about um, the, the surface of structures. Uh, they, we subdivide them into smaller triangles and we analyze each triangle to find out, um, you know, the actual physics of each, each one. And, and by, by doing that particular exercise, Dr. Baumgartner was able to predict the literal paths of all the continents, including India smashing into the um, Asian uh, continent. Uh, and he even went as far as predicting the actual um, speed of these continents. And some of the speeds, I think, were one, one to two metres per second. That's quite fast. And as Donnie has made the um, analogy before, it's like two cars traveling at 100 kilometers an hour in opposite directions, they, they, they hit at uh, 
uh, head-on collision. You, you expect both cars to literally um, go up in almost into an A shape or, or a lambda shape. Whereas if it was going slower, you 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 wouldn't get that. I mean, we've all seen collisions at um, traffic lights, for example, where the car was literally crawling and and you make the comparison. Um, two cars traveling yeah. at 100 kilometers an hour versus um, two cars traveling at five kilometers an hour. So, Bonnie, uh, before we go to Lou's question, I want to elaborate on a couple of points that, that uh, <clears throat> George made that are very important. People have uh, joked with me over <clears throat> the years about my using what in America is uh, marketed as Play-Doh, modeling clay, that is very, very soft. But it turns out George and I have talked about the compressive strength, the Young's modulus of a Play-Doh like this. And this is actually a very good analogy to the soft sediments that were involved in the flood. Yeah. Now, I want to go on next. To can you put that, George? Can, yes. can we just answer that question that was on? I was on before, uh, Donnie. By I think it was Lou. Yeah, I, th I think Lou. Lou, the answer to your question is both, because the Bible says the mountains rose, and the valleys sank. We know that during the recession stage, when the waters began to recede there would have been great erosion occurring. So the erosion effect would also have created mountains and hills, as well as the uplifting of um, some of those regions as well. And Lou, a better way to say the first part of that, did the flood form the mountains? You can go to Dr. Baumgartner's work that George was talking about. It was catastrophic plate tectonics, tectonics yeah. that, that formed the mountains. Now, there were some mountains that came about after uh, the uh, waters uh, receded or even during the time of uh, between creation and the flood. But these were probably volcanic mountains uh, and would uh, there's another story about that. But let me go on back to George's very important point. You know, over and over again, George pointed out that in the Grand Canyon, you simply don't find every unit. Now, let's remember the two different ways to think about this. The traditional evolutionary view is carry out some dinner, Miss Penny Pearl. Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, Mississippian, Pennsylvania. The um, work that um, we've been trying to memorize that Dr. Tim Clary has done is called sequence stratigraphy, where the Cambro Ordovician is called the Salk. And we remember that by six troubled kangaroos attacked zebras today. The Salk, the Tippecanoe, Cascatia, Absarica, Zuni, and Tejas. Tejas being the Spanish word for Texas. The salt sequence rocks, the Camber Ordovician rocks, the Tapete Shale, the Bright, I'm sorry, the Tapete Sandstone, the Bright Angel Shale, and so forth are clearly in the Grand Canyon. But when you get up to Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, this is that missing 
millions of years. Now, as a traditionally trained geologist, how would I view that? I would say, well, George, the reason that the years can't be there is that the index fossils for the Devonian are not there. You don't find abundant fish fossils. The word Devonian comes from the United Kingdom. It actually comes from the Devonshire area of England where you do find fish, fish fossils. And so this uh, matter of index fossils is critical from a traditional geology standpoint for understanding the missing layers that George outlined. Yeah, I'll, I'll be touching up uh, on some of those other evidences on the mega sequences in my second part, David. So I don't know, Donnie, do you want me to go into the second part? Let's do uh, one final question. That way we get through all the super chats and then the rest okay. of the questions we'll wait for the uh, second hour. So here's the last one for this round, gentlemen. And then I believe um, if I understood the format correctly, we're going into the uh, same structure that we did the first hour, David and then George. Well, that actually, one? out of respect for George's time, I want him to go first, not me, in the okay. second hour. Because Works I know he's got a lunch appointment. Um, uh, if it's uh, if it's Thursday for me, it must be Friday for George. So um, I actually will have to look up during the break what 90 East Ridge is. Do you know what that is, George? I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. There's 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 a ridge. I think. Um, uh, between India and um, uh, the the coast of the eastern coast, Malaysia, or what, I can't remember what the uh, the country is, but what is it? it's it's a it's a crack literally that comes off another crack at about perpendicular direction, and it's and it's like a it's a ninety degree uh, north south uh, ridge. I think they call it 90 East Ridge. I don't know for what reason, okay. but during the during the break, I'll look that up. Uh, George, let me yield my time to you, and you can go first this time. Yeah, I, I, George, I think with the, uh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll I'll share my screen just so that I can go through some of this other evidence that I want to present. At least we can say we've um, okay. I touched up on languages. Uh, you can see there again, uh, Genesis 6-9, how it accounts for the flood of eight people. Uh, the symbol for boat is vessel, eight people. Uh, <clears throat> again, you, uh, I'm not going to spend too much time uh, on this but because I, I touched on it before. But you can, you can see plenty, plenty of examples where language is actually uh, uh, synonymous to what the Bible's uh, talking Here's some of those rapid burial of the plants and animals uh, that David was talking about at the Himalayas, but these, these I think, are at the Andes. Uh, massive clams, by the way, in the closed position. Uh, oh, okay, now I want to touch on graveyards. Um, the, the, uh, I think there was a question about wh why – I think there was one question there about why isn't it a multiple of, of uh, multiple uh, – uh, local floods rather than one global flood. Well, you can see there on those arrows are actually depicting where dinosaurs were found drowned 
in the in a drowned position in in where um, forget the term now where their necks are literally bent back. Um, it's a classic uh, death pose of uh, of drowning, but uh, here's some of those uh, examples of um, the death pose. Okay, and as you can see, this is from uh, yesterday's um, uh, presentation by Joe Hubbard. Uh, research shows that these dinosaurs had to be buried within three minutes, or they would never revert back to the natural pose. Uh, they would revert, sorry, they would revert back to uh, the natural pose. So there you go. Um, so we keep saying it's not time, but process that does this. And if we keep going, there's, there's a, um, a link there if you want if you want to check it. Um, but there, there are massive graveyards. The Dinosaur Peninsula, look at this, it stretches almost from uh, – Mexico, right through to, to Canada. Uh, the dinosaur grave, oh, the Ashley, uh, Ashley beds in South Carolina. Uh, for those of you that don't know, read about it because it's very controversial. Apparently they found human bones there and a lot of other, other animals that shouldn't have been in the same layer and a very thin layer, by the way, if you look into it. Uh, leave me a comment down the bottom, by the way, and I'll give you heaps of information on how it's impossible to get the range of fossils that they found in a in a effectively eight thick layer. It's it's really ridiculous. And uh, again, wh why do we get fossils? Well, if if they're not buried quickly, there's a specific water mold. Okay, that literally um, eats up the entire carcass of, of uh, anything that's in the water. I think we even see uh, whale carcasses at the base of the ocean where they've gone back a year later and they've, they've been completely devoured, including the bones, okay? The, you, see, you see the um, uh, crabs come in, they start eating the flesh, and then right down to worms that come in and eat the bones, so the fossils have to be eat, um, buried very quickly, otherwise they will not survive. And here, here's a study that's been done where and they've looked at uh, various fossils where they're found and tracks, and you can see <clears throat> the tracks are always found before the fossils. Tracks, fossils, tracks, bodies, tracks, bodies, and so on. Uh, and mega sequences. Um, you can see how, how they, even the secular um, scientists say that um, the continents were covered by by water. They 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 won't go to the extent of saying that it was um, a global flood, but you can see that there's evidence there of of cat cat catastrophism, and um, it, you, you can see there we uh, we find extensive fossil graveyards and exquisitely preserved fossils. For example, billions of nautiloid fossils are found in, in a layer within the red wall limestone of Grand Canyon. Uh, if you look at the, there, there's one where Kurt Wise is uh, showing the uh, out, outline of uh, the nautiloid. Obviously the rest of it's been eroded to, to that uh, plane of the surface. There's one, another one, that's a nautiloid. And as you can see, there's nautiloids everywhere. Um, I believe, oh, as you can see, the extent of the area. I forget. I forget the size of that area. But um, there's a link if you want to go, and I've given you a timestamp to, to check it out yourselves. 
So uh, <clears throat> there they are again there. There's an autoloid. Um, there's some uh, references. Uh, oops. There's some references there. Uh, and, of course, sedimentary layers. Uh, I mentioned it earlier. 75% of the continents are covered with sedimentary lock layers. Uh, the word itself, sedimentary, means water or wind deposition. Uh, we, we claim that it's uh, water because there's, there's evidence that uh, shows that uh, it can only be water. Uh, as, as I showed you with the Coconino sandstone, the recumbent folds. Also, we get to Steve Austin and the um, Mount St. Helens. Uh, this is a real-life example, guys, um, where the eruption uh, and the melting of the um, snow on the cap uh, literally um, um, eroded all the, the uh, sediments off the mountain and deposited them down uh, further down the um, the valley, but uh, you see some of these um, mega sequences like the Tapete sandstone that we mentioned earlier with the nine degree bends. Look at the size of that, right? And uh, they've done studies on the actual chemical composition of these uh, grains of sand, and um, they found that it actually extends far far more than just uh, the American continent. Uh, it goes straight through, as you can see there, through. Um, uh, most of, most of the uh, the world, and here are some of those global me mega sequences uh, that uh, Professor McQueen was talking about: the the Sauk, the Kaskaskia, the Tippecanoe, uh, massive massive um, mega sequences, guys. And he, he here's I'm going to go through some serious um, of uh, screenshots here where you can see even even the direction of the flows of some of these uh, mega sequences, older vision. The Silurian, the Devonian, the Mississippian, the Pennsylvanian, the Permian, the Triassic, the Cretaceous, the Tapete, there's a Tapete sandstone again, uh, equivalent across North uh, Africa and the Middle East. Even with, uh, I think Professor McQueen touched up on the limestone where you know, you can see you can see uh, evidence of it at Dover in England, right across through Europe, through the Middle East, and going through to the Americas. So, a rapid or no erosion between strata. Uh, we spoke about that in uh, some of those um, photos of the Grand Canyon and many other examples of mountains with those very thin lines between successive layers. Um, I mean, you can argue that they were laid um, one by one, but uh, be because we've just shown you that these mega sequences uh, can't be local floods, guys. Come on. Uh, the thing I like about America is uh, they have so much information on a lot of this stuff. I wish I wish a lot of this uh, kind of uh, analysis can be done across the world, and I think we're slowly doing it, but um, it takes money, and um, we don't have... Um, access to billions of dollars of government grants that uh, secular science uh, uh, has. So many str strata are laid down in rapid succession. Uh, we mentioned those um, mega sequences and, and whatever upstairs, uh, sorry, previously in the, in the presentation. 
Um, geologists have determined early Earth was a water world by studying exposed ocean crust. Now, even they have to admit that uh, the, the, the Earth was literally covered in water. Uh, there's some more references you can check uh, on that. And, of course, the uh, catastrophic plate tectonics, my favourite subject. I love this one. You can see uh, there, there's an um, analysis of one of those uh, coal subduction plates. As you can see, it's, it's um, deep down into the mantle, um, going down 700 kilometres, not metres, kilometres. Okay, I've done, I've done some um, convec convection uh, calculations on this, and um, you'd, expect, you'd expect that um, to... Uh, that coal subduction layer to have reached thermal equilibrium uh, to the surrounding mantle material within uh, tw 29,000 29, years to 290,000 years, depending on, on, on your assumptions. So why are they cold? If that, if that uh, particular subduction plate has been there for a considerable amount of time, and I'll give you an example based on the um, tectonic plate movements at the Hawaiian Islands, I think they've been measured by satellites at 75 millimetres per year, you, you equate that to the 700 kilometres, you get around 10 million years. So this plate has been subducting for 10 million years, okay, and it hasn't reached thermal equilibrium. You'd see, you'd see that particular uh, blue band there changing uh, colour, gradually changing colour if it was there for 10 million years. So, sorry, it, the secular explanation doesn't, uh, doesn't work. And if you think it's an isolated case, I think, again, they're, they're, this is NASA, right? They, they're finding these coal subduction uh, regions pretty much um, every, everywhere they look under the mantle. Okay, so I mentioned that. Tectonic plate movements, um, as I said with uh, Dr. Baumgartner's final animal analysis, still has not been refuted. No secular geologist or geophysicist that I know of has actually refuted this. I've read one paper that attempted to, to explain it. And if, if you read it with an open mind, uh, you'll see the number of assumptions and speculation that they introduce into that paper. It's, it's laughable, really it's laughable. And I, and I can't imagine how it got through a peer review process. I keep saying peer review means nothing. It just means that someone who agrees with you uh, has approved it. Nothing. Uh, the connection of the continents we mentioned earlier. And here are some of those ridges. Unfortunately, I haven't got uh, that particular 90-degree uh, uh, bend, oh, sorry, ridge, east ridge uh, that uh, was um, mentioned in the... Um, uh, in the question, I think it's I think it's somewhere over around here, David. See where India is? At, at, yeah, at I uh, I actually took my break and looked up yeah uh, what he was talking about. So when you reach a break point, I'm ready to yes. Well, I'm I'm, I'm I'm just about to f uh, finish. Uh, you can see there with um, Steve Austin's Steve Austin is a scuba diver uh, like myself. And he's actually taken these photographs. This is Spirit Lake where you can actually see the, um, the logs in the vertical position. And you saw previously from that uh, sonar image how they've been buried in that position as well. So the next one, I think Donnie is aware of this, is the genetics. 
Uh, evidence from uh, genealogy. I mean, um, there's so much about this. Uh, you look at uh, the, the three wives and over. This is the haplogroups that uh, Donny uh, has used quite a few times. Uh, those three nodes, how could they be uh, um, then analogous to the three wives uh, of Noah's sons? This is ge um, genealogy. This is genetics that's doing this, right? So there's another piece of evidence that points back to the, uh, the flood. And, um, and, of course, the, the um, biblical lifespans uh, going back uh, uh, to creation right down th through to today. And um, most people are aware that the Bible is written over 1,500 years. I think it's got 40 authors or so. I think it's 40. And these ages uh, are, are mentioned in the Bible uh, you know, so so and so beget so and so, so and so beget so and so, etc. And when they died, and if you produced a statistical analysis graph like that, uh, I, I'll tell you now, I, I did a whole year of statistical analysis at, at university level. If we find a best fit that's over uh, 0.95, that is considered a very accurate fit. Uh, my point here is. How can um, 40 authors, 40 different authors, uh, over 1,500 years collude collude to get a, a, a statistical analysis that accurate? Sorry, it just can't happen. It's impossible. So you can see there, there's another one where it talks about uh, 95 reasons why the Genesis flood was global. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's the end of my presentation, Donnie. I'm sorry, I had to sort of fly through. Uh, a lot of that, but um, uh, I have to probably leave in about 10 minutes. But, um, yeah, hopefully that that, that was uh, eye-opening for people. Yeah. And George. Yeah. Actually, if I could, Professor McQueen, yeah. since uh, George is leaving at the hour and 45-minute mark, can I get one question in that came specifically for you, George, in the form yep. of a clarifying question based on something? you said earlier on the Grand Canyon. So uh, since we have 10 more minutes with you, by the way, fantastic information. Um, it's hard to believe that, that we've already been doing this for an hour and a half, uh, this session that is. Uh, so great job, gentlemen. So here's a question. Um, let me put it up on screen so you can read it. And lots of good questions coming in from the audience. So I do want to thank the audience as always. Uh, you guys have been awesome during this conference. So many good questions. Um, okay, so a question for George. How do you use dating methods to determine when the Grand Canyon was eroded? I think this goes back to an argument you made in, in your first uh, uh, portion there. Are dating methods useful in telling us when the canyon was eroded? Well, that's just it. I, I keep saying the, the Grand Canyon is made up of predominantly... Um, sedimentary layers and you can't date sedimentary layers it's almost impossible at least you can't date them accurately so um but 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 it's their claim not mine they claim that they can date th things and and unfortunately um we, we've done lots of research on the, the the dating of the canyon by um dating the cardinas and the um what's the other one uh david the um you and Kerry, I think it's the you and Kerry at uh, lava flow where they've yeah, there, where there are several lava flows. Some yeah. of the Indian names are hard for me to pronounce. Yeah, well, 
Well, they, they, they've dated uh, those lava flows uh, wildly different ages using wildly uh, using the different um, um, dating methods, and they and they found um, so, some some variances that 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 run into like the thousands of a percent, thousands of percent variance. And, and guess what? They they have found Indian artifacts, Indian artifacts in those lava flows. They we know that the Indians weren't there like uh, millions of years ago. Uh, right. So so, so their, their their own their own dating methods disprove themselves. Uh, as I as I said about um, the claim that uh, it requires dating to, to find fossil fuels, total baloney, total baloney. Even the the oil exploration firms, if you watch their videos. Not once do they mention dating of rocks. Not once. They use predominantly seismic reflection studies to do to do that um, uh, analysis, and, and that uh, because it's very expensive to drill through through uh, rock layers, you know, uh, two one to two kilometers depth, and then find out, oops, there's nothing here. Let's go there to the next next uh, location. So, yeah, um, it, 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 going back to the question. It's the secular scientists that claim it's 5 million to 70 million. Well, come on. If you reckon your dating methods are accurate, then show us a, a variance that's not 1,400%. I hope that right. sort of clarified it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, George. Uh, Professor McQueen, I understand you wanted to uh, make a couple points uh, as well. Yeah, a couple of comments, but uh, if George has to... Uh, leave soon. You've been kind over the last year to allow us to have a five-minute kind of summary. George, if you want to do that now, you go right ahead, my brother. Oh, I, I can hang around for another five minutes, uh, David. Okay, no problem. Here's uh, here's my comment on, on this. <clears throat> Let's go back to the 90-degree east question. Uh, during the break, during my break, I went and looked it up, and it turns out that's a reference to 90 degrees east longitude. I went into my library and found my globe, and uh, George is quite right that uh, 90 degrees east longitude comes uh, south through uh, Bangladesh and Western China, it's, it, do, it doesn't touch India at all, but it goes, uh, it goes to the west of Sumatra and to the west of Thailand. And the reason that the geological community is interested in this uh, line is that there is a line of, of geologic activity that uh, parallels it. Now, in the time we have tonight, we don't have time to go through the names of the igneous rocks that are found on the ocean basin. But the argument revolves around complex igneous rock types. And the idea of, of this is that, um, what can I use to illustrate? Let's do it this way. I'll tear my Play-Doh in half. And 
the line in between it, I'll use this washcloth here as an example. Let's imagine the washcloth to be uh, the 90 degree east longitude. And as you go down, you divide the basin uh, that is near um, this longitude into two parts. There's an eastern part closer to uh, the islands, and then there's the western part that goes out into the Indian Ocean. Well, if I push these two things together and wrap some of this pink away, the argument is revolving around that pink layer in between. And the evolutionary geologic argument is that uh, over uh, 50, 60 million years, there has been a hot spot underneath here. And as the continents have moved, and as this plate has moved, it has uh, recorded in these rocks um, evidence of the movement. Now, using catastrophic plate tectonics and using the work of Dr. Baumgartner, we don't doubt that there is a interesting geological feature around 90 degrees east longitude. But we would argue that it developed and the rock types developed very quickly. Now, the bottom line or the second part of this whole argument has to do with something that George and I have spoken on more than one occasion <laughs> about, and that is the issue of the accuracy of radiometric dating. In the early 1970s, I worked at Oak Ridge National Labs for Dr. Bob Gentry, who's now passed away, uh, and worked with him on radioactive halos. The issue of radioactive halos is for another day, but the radioactive halos are zones of discoloration in micas and biotites, or rather in biotites and fluorites and so forth. And these zones of this discoloration are uh, concentric. And the fact that they are concentric around a zircon, and they, they truly are circles, not ellipses, allows you to measure the distance to each one of these rings. Now, why would that import, be important? One of the rings is U-238. One of the rings is polonium. It'd be P-O-210. The diameter of these rings are proportional to the radioactive decay rate. If you go throughout the geologic column and you look at supposed intrusives and others, you should be able to prove that the radioactive decay rate has been constant with time. Bob Gentry's work, which you can find in some of my footnotes in the past, maybe Donnie will put one even here. Bob Gentry's work shows that statistically the radioactive decay rate 
at most has significant errors. And if you take the most conservative view of nuclear physics, it, it says nothing about radioactive decay rate or proves it wrong as a young earth creationist would put it. So that would be my summary, uh, George, before you go. Yeah, thanks. Just on time, actually. So uh, I, I'm sorry, but I'll catch the rest of the um, presentation after I get back uh, um, watching the replay. I, I, ho I hope I provided enough uh, information there to really justify our belief in uh, the global flood. Oh, yes. And, 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 and as, yeah. as, I, as I said, I'm surprised that, um, you know, the education system doesn't actually bring in some of these arguments for, only from a critical thinking point of view. I mean, um, I, I remember when I was in university, one of the things that our uh, teachers uh, taught us to do was to critically think. Yes. Uh, yet um, we're not presented some of this information at the lower levels, uh, at the high school levels. Yeah. And uh, that's disturbing to me. And um, uh, because I, I have a daughter that has a master's in biological science. And uh, when I talk to her about some of this ge uh, genealogical st stuff and the genetics, she shakes her head. She says, "No, we were never. We were never taught about soft tissues um, surviving sixty-five million years. You know, the st stuff like that. You know, the, yeah, she doesn't know anything about the haplogroups. Um, none of the uh, mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosome studies. Yeah. So you just wonder what they're being told. And see, uh, one wonderful thing about staying for truth is that." People can go back and look at these uh, videos. And yeah. one thing that's come out of this week is Donnie's idea to pray that God would raise up the money, that this whole series could be put on DVD. And then a teacher could go to a piece of what Dr. Bergman said, go to a piece about the um, genetic argument, and then come and look at our flood geology argument. I hope people raise that money up for you, Donnie. That'd be a good idea, wouldn't it? Mm. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'll say good, goodbye now. God bless everyone, and um, I'll see you when I see you. Okay, yes, God sure. bless, George. Fantastic work. Appreciate it. That was nearly two hours of just nonstop evidence for the global flood. So God bless you, George. Enjoy your pizza. I'll, I'll have a pizza and a beer for you too, uh, Donnie, okay? I'll wait <laughs> for you. Non-alcoholic one. <laughs> see, see you, David. See you. Bye, Donnie. Donnie, what I'd like to do is uh, take some more questions, and then I'd like you to block off five minutes at the end because I'd like to give. Uh, I've had quite a journey in the last two months of uh, sickness, and uh, have been taught by the Holy Spirit. I think some things, and so at the end. I'd like uh, five minutes to summarize that. Um, let's go ahead to the next question. Okay. All right. That sounds great, uh, David. So uh, Stephen Tibetz, who I uh, seem to never be able to pronounce your last name correctly, Stephen. So hopefully that time I did. Question for McQueen. How many cans of Play-Doh would it take to demonstrate all the layers in the geologic column? Okay, let's let's count it out on our fingers, brother, uh, brother Stephen. 
Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, Mississippian, Pennsylvanian, Permian, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, that's 10. And then when you get to the, when you get past the Cretaceous, this whole argument about is that when the flood ended or not? Well, when you go on up into what's called the tertiary and quaternary, you would add at least two more. And if you wanted to try to simulate Eocene, Paleocene, and all the other divisions, um, why don't you send Donnie enough money for maybe 40 cans of Play-Doh? <laughs> awesome. Love it. Okay. Well, appreciate that. Um, okay. So question comes in from Cool Jesus. Cool Jesus, thank you so much. Always with good questions. And um, okay, so here's the question. During the flood, was there standing water all ac uh, across the globe? Or were there intervals of dry land and then water rushed over the land? Were the continental plates moving underwater or above? Okay, let me erase the board. Is there some glare in this area but you can still read down in this area, Donnie? Oh, yeah, I, I can still, a little bit of glare, but I can still read it. Okay, let me erase this and use the bottom part of the board because this is an important issue. The quick answer to the second part of that question is that the um, uh, catastrophic plate tectonics is happening underneath the water. Now, let's be sure that we clearly remember what the Bible uh, teaches that the waters rose over a six-month period, and that gets us up to Genesis 8, verse 1, and then the waters receded So for an additional six months. When my wife and I teach children, we point out to them that everybody had a birthday on board the ark. So the overall process was more than 365 days. And so when we look at the model that I've been working on for several decades, you have a one world continent that's in the shape of a sea so this would be north, and this would be uh, the way that the continent looked um, when the flood began. I have no idea where Noah's Ark was built, and I challenge both theologically and also archaeologically, geologically, I don't think anybody knows where the Ark was built. Could it have been down here? or up here, or over here. No one knows where it was built. But to help people conceptualize things, what I've done over the years is I've tried to imagine where uh, Eden was. And since in our modern world, most people live within a one-hour drive of the beach, I would imagine that the most heavily populated areas of this one world continent would be the coastal areas. Why would that be important? My mentor, Dr. Henry Morris, 
estimated there might have been a billion people alive at the beginning of the flood. Uh, another researcher uh, writes under the name John Wood Morapi. Jan Petschkus is his name. He's been a guest in my house. We've talked for a long time. John Wood Morapi thinks that there might have been 100 million people alive. Well, whether it's a billion or 100 million, that's a lot of people in this area here. Now, why have I left a gap right in this area? If you're aware of the geologic vocabulary for Pangaea, this would be called the Tethys Sea, the words Gondwana land and so forth, could be applied to the other parts. But if this area here that I've drawn in the triangle is the area where Eden was, then we can talk about some interesting things. Through Adam and Eve and through Adam's testimony, we know that there were rivers that flowed from an upland area, probably in this area. And let me use a different color and a different symbol. Let me use this symbol to illustrate mountainous areas. So these rivers ran down to the ocean the same way they do uh, today. And that is where we find in Genesis a reference to rivers that have heads, headwaters. Some of these words are the same we see today. And therein lies an interesting point. I don't think we can ever find exactly where these rivers were. But as the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth moved around the world, they named certain war areas from what they had determined in the Bible. So they, they saw a river valley that reminded them of the Tigris-Euphrates. So one of them got a, a name of that. When my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, came over from Scotland in 1820, he moved to North Carolina. Why? Because aspects of North Carolina's geography and geology reminded him probably of the highlands uh, that are uh, northwest of uh, uh, Glasgow. Um, and so there's a lot of things that are going on. But now on to your question. When the worldwide flood happened and this broke up, you've got continental masses, and I think you can still see it if I come down here. You've got areas, for example, like Australia right here, maybe South America began moving this way, North America, some of this became Europe and India, and <clears throat> this modern thing we've been talking about, the uh, 90th, 90 degrees east longitude <coughs> might be there. Let me take a sip of water here. And so as these uh, continental masses were moving 
they were colliding, producing the Rocky Mountains, the Appalachian Mountains, the, the uh, <clears throat> Atlas, the uh, Atlas Mountains in Morocco. It is probably the case <clears throat> that all of the Alps were not built uh, in that last six months. And after the time of the flood, we have a time of residual catastrophe. So having said all that, the answer to your question is yes. As the year-long flood went, there were parts of, let's say, the western United States that had an inland sea that went up. If the Plato can is around Memphis, Tennessee, this is Memphis, and you go out west of Memphis um, to Texas and all the way up into Canada, there was probably an ocean there, and we find a lot of dinosaur trackways associated with that area. And so what do we know biblically? What must be true biblically is that by the time Adam, Adam, by the time Noah and his family got off the ark, what had to be true? Every human was judged by God and was dead. And then secondly, every animal that was not on board the ark was dead. With the exception, of course, of fish and mosasaurs and other creatures that could have lived during that time. Do you find that answer helpful, Donnie? Definitely. Very thorough, uh, Professor McQueen. I always appreciate the visuals of the diagram, so that was very helpful. Um, I do appreciate that. Professor McQueen, we'll go, we'll go right to the next question then. You're doing a great okay. job. So this comes in from Doki Doki Bible Club. And uh, Doki has a question, and the question is, how does Professor David McQueen and George answer the geologist who says a catastrophe here and there is no problem in the old earth model. So if, if I could reword that a little bit, sounds like he's pointing to the old earth argument that says, well, yeah, over here we've had a catastrophe, a, a local catastrophe. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean there was a worldwide catastrophe. Go ahead, David. Right. And the, the way that your Bible club in the future should answer teachers that say this, um, yes, there were... Uh, local catastrophes. And I understand as a young earth creationist that in your old earth model, uh, you have no problems with local catastrophes. But as you teach the Bible Club, club remember that there are now three points of view that are being held. There is the traditional, all this is wrong, and old earth evolutionary geology is true. There's a compromise position uh, that is being put out there now that is called old earth creationism. And then my point of view and the point of view of standing for truth is young earth creationism. And so let's go to the compromise position of old earth uh, evolutionists. They will say, okay, McQueen, you know, we, we don't have any problem with, uh, uh, a, a local flood sometime 
in the last billion years, burying the Green River, the Green River fish fossils out in the western United States. We don't have any problem with the local catastrophe, burying a bunch of dinosaurs in Australia or burying Archaeopteryx in Europe. We don't have any problem with that. But how can you put it together into a global flood? The point they're missing, and the way I would answer it, is if you get all 10 of my grandchildren at Christmas time running through my house, I see the oldest teenager run through and knock something over. That's a local catastrophe. And then the baby of the family actually knocks the complete Christmas tree over. Well, that's a big time Ms. McQueen catastrophe there. If I look at these 10 isolated catastrophes, I can see them happening sequentially during the time of a year-long flood. My problem is that if an evolutionary uh, scientist were to come into my house and see the broken pot here and the overturned Christmas tree there, he might try to say, oh, these are 10 isolated local catastrophe, but Christmas still lasted a week, didn't it? I hope you find that analogy helpful. Yes, I love it. Always very helpful. Um, Okay, let me sneak this one in here, too. A uh, question from Stephen. Stephen asks, um, question for both, but uh, we'll have to answer for George. But uh, good thing you and George are very like-minded, uh, Brother McQueen. So That's question true. is, how much credence do you give to the theory that after the flood buried everything in the low-lying seas, that the land sunk and the old seas uplifted? That question, Stephen ties in very nicely with the history of uh, flood geology. You have to remember that Dr. Whitcomb and Dr. Morris worked on the defining book, um, the Genesis flood, all through the 1950s. Dr. Morris's children have told me about how every family vacation, either the Morris family went to Indiana to be with Dr. Whitcomb or the Whitcomb family came to wherever the Morris family was, Louisiana, Texas, wherever they were, VPI, to work on the, the book. And so when those men were reading the geology books in the 50s, plate tectonics was not on the horizon yet. There were some ideas about it, but the basic idea in the 1950s was that you had land masses which were responding to what the geophysicists called isostasy. And this is the idea that if you have a block of the Earth's crust that's quite heavy, it's going to go down. And as it goes down, the lighter areas are going to go up. But it gets even more interesting than that because if you use the Play-Doh to create a soft layer and then you make a syncline out of it, like this, like a smiley face, this was the, these were the years of the geosynclinal idea 
of sediments coming into large ocean basins and so forth. Okay, so Dr. Morris lived long enough and Wickham did too to uh, understand that plate tectonics played a role. Well, if you go to Dr. Andrew Snelling's now 10-year-old big book on uh, Earth's catastrophic past, that was the rewrite that Dr. Morris wanted done of the Genesis flood incorporating modern geology ideas. Then if you go beyond Dr. Andrew Snelling's book up to uh, the book that has taught us so much about sequence stratigraphy, when you go up to the, the, the big book of Tim Clary, he then pulls in all kinds of data from oil wells worldwide that documents this uh, sequence stratigraphy. Let me see if I have memorized it well enough. So we've got six. Um, we got the Salk sequence first. And then it goes up through six other sequences and then ends up in the Tejas at the top. And these are from the bottom to the top, Absarica and all the rest that is getting too late for me to remember. Of course, I could read it from my secret list here. Um, six troubled kangaroos attack zebras today. Salk, Tippecanoe, Cascassia. Absarica, Zuni, and Tejas. So this is the modern flood geology replacement for Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, and Devonian, and so forth. So that's I would answer that. Well, I appreciate that, Professor McQueen. I do want to be cognizant and respectful of your time. We are over the two-hour mark, uh, brother. Let did me, you want uh, to go in? Let me take two more questions. And then I'd like to give my five-minute summary. Okay, perfect. Here we go. Next question comes. And as you know, Professor McQueen, we've always got endless uh, questions from our awesome audience. Well, that's good. We'll have to do a 100% Q&A in a couple of weeks. Amen. And we still have over 80 people in the live chat enjoying session eight. Uh, you and George have done a fantastic uh, job, David. So next question comes in from Pure Aussie Gold. Question. What does George and Professor McQueen think of the wave formation in Central Australia? Um, you know what? Uh, I have never been taught by John Mackay and George about this wave formation. So we'll save that for next time, Aussie Gold. Next one. Okay, perfect. So next question comes in from uh, right here. Jeremy McLeroy, thank you for the question. I've heard there is some pre-flood rock visible for research. Is there anything it can tell us? Well, uh, I think the answer is yes. Um, in, the, in the time before the flood, we, we know a couple of things for sure. There was igneous rock 
and metamorphic rock and sedimentary rock predominantly without um, predominantly without fossils. Now, I've been using a teacher trick on you with this red rock here. It turns out that I looked at it in some detail, and if I take it up close to my camera, you'll notice that white area. Well, that's that turns out is quartz, and this is actually an igneous rock with uh, a boundary here. It's almost like igneous and sedimentary. It's much of what we might have expected to find in the pre-flood world. And so uh, I will tell a story uh, from my experience. In 2018 and 2019, I was invited to be a geologist as part of a missionary team that went to the country of Zimbabwe. Now, those of you that are as old as I am uh, will remember that modern Zimbabwe was called Rhodesia in the past. The capital, Harare, that I flew into in the old days was called Salisbury. And you'll remember that there was quite an argument between the uh, uh, white government and the black Africans about the political future of this country, Zimbabwe. Well, being in, in Zimbabwe for almost a month and a half, separated by a year, certainly made me fall in love with Africa. I, I didn't understand why so many missionaries actually fall in love with the culture and the uh, environment of, uh, of Africa. Well, when I got to the Bible camp where we stayed, I noticed on the road there and on the road coming into the camp, actually, that there were enormous outcroppings of granites that uh, uh, were lining the road. And so I began to collect these granites from uh, tens of kilometers away from downtown Harare to uh, the actual church courtyard uh, of one of the churches that we spoke at in uh, the city of Harare. And to show you how the Holy Spirit works in people's lives, there was a certain type of rock called a pegmatite that I hadn't been able to find, or at least I didn't find it with big enough biotite crystals in it that I could do research like Bob Gentry taught me to look at the radioactive halos in it. And so during a break in the church service, I walked out into the courtyard and I noticed that around the big tree were exactly the kind of rocks I was looking for. So I didn't have to stumble through the jungle like uh, Stanley and Livingston did back in those famous days. I didn't have to go down the Zambezi to Victoria Falls, it was right there in front of me. And I brought that those rocks back and have begun doing research on them. Igneous rocks that would be called granites, especially those that have biotites in them, are a type of creation week rock that I think we can benefit from.
Do you see my point there, Donnie? I do, Professor McQueen. I do. I appreciate all the, the knowledge you have on, on this important technical topic. Um, with that, we've gotten through a ton of questions. This has been another comprehensive session. Did we want to go into uh, closing words, points? And yeah, thoughts? yeah, I would. Uh, and this is very personal to me because uh, I have had uh, kidney problems uh, since the 1st of July and have will be, I appreciate your prayers, will be uh, having my fourth uh, surgery this coming Tuesday. Uh, compared to what I've been through, it's a minor matter. But nonetheless, I have been uh, laid up uh, during the last two months and have had quite a bit of time to think about what I was going to say tonight. Um, and the Lord led me to the book of Job, not because I suffered as badly as him, but because of Job's friends. You may recall that when Satan was allowed to touch Job uh, and Job's children and so forth, that our uh, scripture points out that Job had a number of friends that came around him. Uh, one of his friends was named Elihu. And if you go and read from about Job 39, Job 36, all the way to the end, you'll see that God rebukes these friends because they told Job the wrong things. In other words, they said, Job, this has happened to you because of your own sinfulness. Well, no question that Job was a sinner. But at the end of the book, as God points out to Job, Behemoth and Leviathan, he humbles Job by helping him to see that he's not God. He's not in control of all this. And of course, we know at the end, uh, God made it up to Job, which is looking forward uh, to heaven. And so, I realize that in the Standing for Truth audience, I'm not the only person that's been under the weather in the last two months. But I, my encouragement would be to continue to put your focus on uh, God. Now, why would this come into a discussion of flood geology? If George and I and the others can point out that Genesis 6, 7, and 8 can be trusted. If through the work of Donnie and others, we can actually see that we can get the current population and get the current genetic structure, DNA, uh, and all the rest, going back to just two people 6,000 years ago, then can you see that if you trust Genesis, then as you move to the New Testament, as the Lord Jesus points back over and over again to Genesis, you can also trust him. And so the focus for myself has been, how can I move closer to the Lord? Well, I'm not as close as I hope to be this time next year, but I would encourage you to go back, and if you've never done it, it would be handy to... Uh, read with fresh eyes 
the first 12 chapters of Genesis and then skip over to the book of John. And again, with fresh eyes, read what it says there. Thank you, Donnie, for this opportunity for testimony. Amen. Amen, Brother McQueen. As always, lots of love and, and plenty of prayers for you, uh, Professor McQueen. I do appreciate those uh, beautiful and uh, very thoughtful final words. That is the perfect way to conclude session eight with Professor David McQueen and uh, Man, George Bond. What I'm going to do, brother, is I'm going to go down and leave the studio and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. God Bye -bye. bless, brother. And God bless the audience. Thank you for uh, sticking with us. We've still got 80 people in the chat. Please share around this content. The truth is important. And as I like to say, you know, we at Standing for Truth, we are just getting started. So uh, that's a wrap of day four. We've had two sessions, session seven with uh, Dr. Jerry Bergman here. Um, Darwin's frauds, blunders, and forgeries. That was from roughly six till 7.30. And then we just had uh, Professor McQueen and George Bond give two plus hours of just undeniable, irrefutable evidence for the Genesis flood. Uh, day three, we had uh, myself, evolutionist favorite arguments debunked. I had some fun for two hours straight debunking nested hierarchies, homology, transitional forms, the fossil record in general, chromosome 2 fusion, endogenous retroviruses, pseudogenes, DNA level hierarchies, you know, the so-called uh, similarities in DNA anatomy morphology between chimps and, and humans. And that really was a blast. Uh, we also had uh, for day three, this was, I believe, session six, dinosaurs and the Bible and the G illogic column. Uh, this was a fascinating presentation, two and a half hours of just some really amazing information, uh, updates on the creation research team and their flume experiments. Uh, Joseph Hubbard and John Mackay, the creation guy, two of my uh, favorite young earth creationists, uh, just a couple of geniuses doing some really phenomenal uh, research. So um, definitely check that one out. Then, of course, day two, we had countering compromise with CJ Cox. Matt N gave a three plus hour, um, two plus hour presentation. Then we did about an hour discussion on Genesis Genetics, day one, we uh, kicked off the conference with uh, T-Rock on dating methods, the Isochron method and other dating duds. And of course, Sal Jardina, our very first presentation for, uh, for the week, the relevance of Genesis. And uh, tomorrow, day five is our uh, final day. Uh, once this conference is complete, we would have probably had about 20 plus hours worth of content for you. I would love to uh, get this conference into a uh, DVD collector's edition, I guess you could say. 20 hours worth of content, defending Genesis, evidence for separate ancestry creation, evidence against uh, universal common ancestry and uh, deep time. 
Again, it really is a great time to be a young earth creationist. Uh, tomorrow's day five, our final day. We have two more sessions. So uh, specifically, we have uh, Matt Powell. He will be here um, at five. So he'll be giving a presentation, Evidence for Creation. And then we're wrapping up this entire conference, this epic week of uh, presentations, discussions, audience Q&A periods, uh, refuting the critics. We're going to wrap it up with a debate. So, of course, the uh, debate king himself, this will be his 301st debate. <laughs> uh, he's definitely setting records. Dr. Dino versus uh, David Emery. The rematch is the reasonable evidence for macroevolution, uh, which, if there is, would contradict the account of origins and ancestry in Genesis. So uh, that will be our final session, session 10. And that will be tomorrow at eight o'clock or seven o'clock central. Um, and last thing I want to mention, um, special creation, nearly 300 pages worth of content. Uh, describing the amazing evidence for separate ancestry, independent origins, a literal Adam and Eve. If you can see the uh, awesome cover, Benjamin did another amazing job. He really is a blessing to this ministry. Uh, we've now um, you know, published over a dozen books, and I really am just thrilled with his artwork. He's very talented. So if you could see on the back of the book, you'll have uh, topics covered such as mitochondrial Eve, why chromosome Noah out of Africa versus out of Middle East, Neanderthals and human evolution, where I touch a great deal on Neanderthal phylogenetics in this book. You'll find some novel answers to the critics' favorite challenges and criticisms to the biblical model of ancestry, evolution versus devolution. I've got an incredibly uh, comprehensive chapter on genetic entropy and gen uh, genetic degeneration in this book. As a matter of fact, it's it's the length of the chapter. It could be its own handbook. Uh, that also goes for the chapter on Neanderthals, which I am going to uh, start work on a Neanderthal handbook as well. Uh, chromosome two fusion, of course, which I touched on in great detail during uh, last night's session, and of course, endogenous retroviruses. But I do have an entire book out on endogenous retroviruses. So uh, if that being, you know, the number one evidence these days put forth or advanced by the evolutionary community. Uh, definitely. Here it is here. If you haven't yet picked up this book, please do. It's worth it. Um, it's worth it's worth the, the read and you'll be well equipped uh, to take on the evolutionists and their, you know, so-called best lines of evidence. So real quick, let me just look at the chat and um all right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. This was a ton of fun. Uh, Doki Doki Bible Club. Thank you so much, brother. Yes. Yeah, so tomorrow, Eastern Time, uh, session nine with Matt, and then session 10. Uh, in my opinion, the perfect way to wrap up a conference, uh, this specific conference, at least uh, with a debate. Uh, and it'll be a, a very uh, entertaining debate, I'm sure, between Kent and uh, David Emery. So with that, we are going to wrap up day four. This was, again, session 
Um, session eight, David McQueen and George Bond, amazing evidence for a worldwide flood. Um, actually, I want to get this in here before I forget what we'll do uh, sometime after the conference. Um, so between probably uh, Saturday and Wednesday of next week, uh, Matt and myself, we will do a uh, 2022 Defending Genesis Conference Aftermath Program, where we will uh, just come together for a couple hours. We will discuss some of the highlights of uh, the conference. And since we've had um, hours worth of audience Q&A, and yet still many questions um, that we haven't had the time or opportunity to get to, uh, what we'll do is just kind of open it up during that time as well for uh, straight audience questions. So if there are questions that you ask during the conference, especially during um, Matt and my, and my uh, sessions, then just make sure to send those questions in um, during that aftermath show or after show to the Defending Genesis Conference, and we'll do our best to uh, answer them. So we're doing a lot, guys. The party's just getting started. And again, thank you so much uh, for tuning in, Iron Matt. Appreciate that. I thought that would be fun. Um, and okay. All right. God bless everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Tons of fun, tons of information. Share this content around. The truth is important. Critical thinking is important. And uh, we will see you tomorrow at five o'clock EST. Bye.